And please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 16. As we continue our study of this great epistle. Wherever the truth of the gospel goes, false teaching comes behind it. And you see that in the New Testament. Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, took the gospel uh, to Galatia. He planted churches in Galatia. And what do we read in the letter that he wrote uh, to those churches? Uh, he expresses great alarm uh, because of the false teachers uh, that have come to Galatia that the Galatian believers seem to be believing. And so the whole point of Galatians is a warning uh, against that false teaching which added works uh, to grace and faith as the way of salvation. Think of the book of 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul brings up uh, how there were some who came to Corinth and presented themselves as apostles, uh, but they were false apostles, uh, undermining uh, the, the preaching of the gospel in Corinth. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, Paul says of the false apostles who came to Corinth, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Think about what the Apostle Paul wrote or uh, said uh, to the elders in Ephesus. Paul had been involved in planting a church there. He comes back to Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem for a uh, really doesn't even get into to Ephesus. He just calls the Ephesian elders to meet him at the seaport. And uh, he speaks to them. In Acts 20, verse 29, he warns them, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Think about the letter that Paul writes to the church in Colossae. Paul had not been to Colossae, uh, but those who had been impacted by his ministry nearby Colossae uh, had planted a church in Colossae. And Paul writes to that church uh, when he is in prison in Rome, and in that epistle, he warns them against false teaching. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, around the same time, Paul writes to the Philippian church, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Speaking about the Judaizers. The same kind of false teachers uh, who had gone to Galatia and had caused such troubles there in Galatia. Uh, Paul has to warn the Philippian church about such false teachers. Wherever the truth of the gospel goes, false teaching comes behind it. And this continues today. I remember when the Iron Curtain fell. Those of you who are, are uh, teens and, and children uh, don't remember a time when there was an Iron Curtain. Uh, but I remember when I was a freshman in high school, the Iron Curtain fell, meaning uh, that uh, communism 
thought um, in the in the, the USSR, in the satellite nations of the Soviet Union, and uh, doors were opened as communism fell. Doors were opened uh, for Westerners to come into uh, those former Soviet states. What happened? Well, Christian missionaries flocked to the former Soviet states. And who else flocked to the former Soviet states? The cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, so forth. The cults flocked there as well. Wherever the truth of the gospel goes, false teaching comes behind it. You see it all throughout church history. So we have to be on guard against false teaching. And we have to teach other believers to be on guard. You know, Christ has called every every believer to disciple other believers. We, we, we should be evangelizing. And when people are saved, we should notice, oh, here's a new believer. Let's make sure that they are discipled. And the Lord intends for us as believers, to be involved in the discipleship of younger believers. One of the things that we need to teach younger believers is to be on guard against false teaching. This passage that we're going to look at tonight is a warning against false teaching, and it's not isolated. Uh, it's connected to other similar passages throughout the New Testament. Uh, this text uh, that we're going to look at this evening um, gives us the final instructions in this epistle. We've spent a lot of time in the book of Romans. Uh, in the first 11 chapters, it was almost all doctrine about uh, the, the gospel, about salvation, including justification, sanctification, and glorification. Then starting in chapter 12, there were practical instructions to believers for how we are to live as those who have been saved by the gospel. And now as we come to these instructions that warn us uh, about false teaching, uh, we come to the last instructions that are given to us in this epistle. I'm going to read to us chapter 16, verses 17 through 23. If you're able, please stand in honor of the word of God. Verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. Atrocius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erasmus, greet you. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. This follows uh, the greetings uh, that Paul gave uh, to individuals uh, in the church at Rome uh, in verses 1 through 16. 
And uh, I found it amazing uh, when we studied that passage how many individuals uh, Paul knew of in this church that he had never visited. It was a wonderful section with those personal greetings that Paul gave to individuals in the church. Uh, the greetings that Paul gave, and with, with each greeting he, he said, or with many of the greetings, he, he said different things about those to whom uh, he was sending greetings. The, these greetings, along with the greetings that he gives from his companions in the passage that we just read, reflect the unity of the church, the harmony of the church. But in the first section of our text this evening, he warns against something that destroys the church's unity. Something that has threatened some of the churches that Paul has planted, and that is false teaching. A warning about false teachers in verses 17 through 19. Look closely at verses 17 and 18. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. Now, if you look closely at verses 17 and 18, which words in these verses indicate that Paul is talking about false teachers? Daniel. Yes, the word deceive in verse 18. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. The false teachers are deceivers. Anyone else? Mom? Okay. So in verse 17, those words, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Uh, so they're introducing things, they are promoting things, they're teaching things that are contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. They deceive the hearts of the naive. Paul is talking here about false teachers. He warns against those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. That word Obstacles um, is translated by the New American Standard as hindrances, or the Legacy Standard Bible as stumblings. Those who cause divisions and create hindrances or stumblings, obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. That word obstacles in the original means, literally means, the bait stick of a trap. Now, currently our family is trying to trap a groundhog that causing great problems um, underneath our shed and in our garden. Um, and so there, there's a bait stick, and you, you put bait on that stick. I'm putting bananas on there. I put about six bananas so far, and I can't get the guy. But this word, obstacles, literally means the bait stick of a trap. It can also mean trap, temptation, enticement, stumbling block, that which gives offense, or that which arouses opposition. Here, the word refers to teaching that entices people away from sound doctrine. That bait stick, that I put that banana on, and trying to entice that groundhog to do something that's very dangerous for him. All right, here, this word is used of teaching 
that entices people away from sound, healthy doctrine uh, into teachings that are actually dangerous to their soul. Paul refers to sound teaching here as, quote, the doctrine that you have been taught. He's talking about the apostolic teaching that is now our New Testament, along together with the Old Testament. These individuals were causing divisions and creating obstacles contrary to that doctrine. Teaching that is contrary to Scripture, if not opposed, will fracture a church. That's why he talks about divisions. John MacArthur wrote in his commentary, God's true church is bonded by his word and the power of his indwelling spirit who applies and builds the church on and through that word. He also says the greatest harm against believers is that which undermines God's truth in which they live. God's word is the foundation on which we stand. We are saved through believing the truth. The greatest harm that can be done against believers is to undermine God's truth in which they live. And that's what false teaching does. False teachers challenge and undermine the true gospel, spreading a false gospel. But they do so, as Paul puts it in verse 18, by smooth talk and flattery. He says they deceive the hearts of the naive. This is how Satan was with Eve in the Garden of Eden. He came in and he questioned God's word. He questioned God's motive behind what God had said and the instruction he gave. He deceived, the Bible tells us he deceived Eve into disobeying God. False teachers are spoken of in 2 Corinthians as servants of Satan. Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies. He did this in the garden. He used smooth talk and flattery with Eve. He deceived the heart of naive Eve. False teachers make their teaching sound appealing. But they undermine the one true foundation that we have been given to stand upon. In Matthew 7.15, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So they're very dangerous. They're like wolves. They, they will devour with their false teaching. They will devour souls. But they don't come in with the appearance of being a wolf. They, they're wearing sheep's clothing. It, it's the, their appearance is deceptive. They have the appearance of being a, a genuine a Christian. They have the appearance of being one, one of us. When the New Testament is warning about false teachers, it, it's not warning against false religions. The, certainly the Bible warns against any, any false religion. 
But what's talking about false teachers, it's those who present themselves as Christians. They have the appearance of being Christians. But they and they use the scriptures in their teaching. But they twist the scriptures enough so that what they are teaching is a false gospel that sends people to hell if believed. That's what Paul is warning against. Those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, who by smooth talk and flattery deceive the hearts of the naive. Now Paul says we're to do two things. First of all, in verse 17, he says we are to watch out for them. We are to be on guard against false teachers. We are to identify them as false teachers who are to be avoided. And the second thing we're to do, in addition to watching out for them, he tells us in verse 17, is we are to avoid them. We're to reject their teaching. We're to refuse to give them a platform for spreading their teaching. We are to protect fellow believers, especially new converts and the immature, from being deceived, confused, and misled by them. Well, what are some of the more well-known groups of false teachers today? Prosperity gospel. Other groups, well-known false teachers. Daniel. Mormons. Another well-known group. Well, so witnesses. And there's many more that, that we can add to that list. Many that are not as well-known as, as those. Many, many false groups of false teachers. Paul says we are to be on guard, or we are to be to watch out for them. We are to avoid them. We are to avoid them because, despite their appearance, they do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They have the appearance of serving our Lord Christ, but the truth is, they don't serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. No matter how sincere and caring they may appear to be, a person who promotes a false gospel is not a servant of Christ. Instead, they serve their own appetites, whether for fame, or for power, or for money, or for whatever else. Now, I put a question in the bulletin that asks, Verses 17 and 18 warn against false teachers. Where do we encounter false teachers? And how can we be on guard against false teachers? Where do we encounter them? How can we be on guard against them? Well, sometimes on TV. Yes. TV, radio. Yes. In in, in some churches, quote-unquote churches, if it's the official teaching of the church, be a false church. Yes, sir. Yes, Ross. Uh, I mean, I was never 
the different individual among among the different individuals that that we meet that we Rabbi Shlomo is with, and there are false teachers among them. Any others? Yes, Don. And works-based gospel. Also in books, um, many different places. How about the second part of that question? How can we be on guard against false teachers? Daniel. Uh, memorizing scripture. Knowing for yourself what the Bible teaches. So we need the Holy Spirit's help praying that, that, the, that the Lord would, by His Spirit, equip us. Anthony, you under good teachers. And what should you be doing when you're under good teachers? Being, being a, like, like, like the Bereans, comparing what you're hearing to the Word of God so that you don't believe it because a good teacher said it, but you believe it because you've seen it in the Bible. You've seen it for yourself. Uh, in conversation, asking these individuals what it is they actually believe. So, who is Jesus? How is a person reconciled to God? Because in those, in those answers uh, will be elements of, of what is what is the core of their false teaching. Yes. So asking people these key key questions where false teachers uh, will often um, teach a false Christ um, and they will teach a false way of salvation. Who is Jesus? Uh, what did Jesus come to do? How is a person made right with God? Questions like that. Very good questions to ask. We should be reading the Bible every day. Meditating on God's word every day. We, we eat uh, physical food every day. I think all of us do that. I don't think any of us just eat once a week. I think we all eat every day. We, we, we know that we need that. We don't even have to discuss it. We just know it. We, we need to eat food every day. How much more so it should be with God's word? We need to be feeding our soul with God's word daily. Um, for many reasons. One benefit of reading God's word is it will protect us against false teaching. Kind of a step beyond that to know the context of of scriptures. Uh, one time a Mormon was trying to convince me of Mormonism with some verses from Ezekiel that talk about God taking two sticks and bringing them together. And so he said one stick is the Bible and the other is the Book of Mormon. Well, that kind of sounded good unless you looked at the context and discovered that's the two sticks are identified, and it's not the book of Mormon. Right. Yes. False teachers will use verses out of context. 
to try to prove their teaching. Pay attention to context. Now, Paul wants his readers, the believers in Rome, to know that when he says this, he's not saying this because he thinks that they are naive. You know, he has said in verse 18, um, such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Paul wants these believers to know that he's not writing this warning because he believes that they are naive. However, it's still important for them to hear Paul's warning. Look at what he says in verse 19. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but... I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. That's why he's just giving them this warning, not not because they're immature. He's giving them this warning because he wants them to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. He says, your obedience is known to all. All the churches know of the Roman believers' obedience to Christ. Something that Paul indicated in the very beginning of this book is vital, obedience to Christ. I, I put in your, your notes, chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, where Paul brought up the believers' obedience. He wrote, Through whom, that's through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul saw his mission as bringing about the obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name among all the nations. That's making disciples. When one believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, and is saved, then there's going to be a change that's brought about in their life by the Holy Spirit. That faith in Christ will be evidenced by a new obedience to God, a growing obedience to God. And so Paul thinks in terms of this this mission as bringing about the obedience of faith, that obedience that faith produces for the sake of Christ's name. Obedience is important. And now here in verse 19, he affirms that he understands your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. There's no greater joy than to see your children walking in the truth. No greater joy for Paul than to hear uh, of these who have professed faith in Christ, living lives of obedience to Christ. He rejoices over them. But... He's written what he's written because he wants them to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. He writes with the desire that the believers in Rome would continue to be discerning. Now Paul's focus then shifts in the next section from the false teachers that he's been warning about and from being on guard to the one whom false teachers serve and the assurance of victory over that spirit. We have assurance of victory in verse 20. Look at verse 20. 
The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Remember, false teachers are servants of Satan. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I have a question that I put in the bulletin. What do you find striking here in verse 20? And how does the peace that is mentioned in this verse relate to the crushing of Satan? You can answer either part of that. Uh, why do, what do you find striking here uh, in this verse? And how does the peace mentioned in the verse relate to the crushing of Satan? Mom? So, it, it can sound like these are opposites. Peace and crushing an enemy. That can be striking. The God of peace crushing. Daniel. So, God's crushing of his enemy brings peace for his redeemers. Anyone else? Anything you find striking? Maybe more about that relationship? Uh, Enoch. Yeah, and, and in in those in that statement, what in that statement do you find striking? What's what stands out to you there? Is there anything that kind of surprises you there? Can you think on that while we give others opportunity to share? Sure. Yeah. God will do the crushing, but under your feet. Yeah. Anything else striking? Maybe the word soon. You will soon cross Satan under your feet. Let's uh, take a look, a uh, closer look at this verse. The first promise of victory over Satan goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, uh, where God spoke to the serpents. Of course, Satan used the serpent. God speaks, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. And God says, he shall bruise your head. The one who will bruise the head uh, is the offspring of the woman. Ultimately, it's Jesus Christ. He will bruise the head of the one who was behind the serpent, Satan. Bruise to the head is a fatal bruise. 
He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head. That is the first promise of victory over Satan. That's spoken in the hearing of Adam and Eve. It's a promise for them to, sh- to pass on to their children and their children to pass on to their children. God's first promise that he has given a victory over Satan. Now, understand that just as the believer has been saved, is being saved, and will be saved, likewise, the Bible speaks of Satan as having been defeated. It speaks of Satan. I'm sorry, let me just read the way I put it here. Likewise, Satan has been defeated, is being defeated, and will be defeated. The scripture speaks of all three aspects of Satan's defeat. There's a past defeat, there's a current defeat, and there's a future defeat of Satan. Satan, of course, was defeated at the cross. And I put cross references, you can look at them later in the Gospel of John, the book of Colossians, the book of Hebrews, the book of First John. Satan was defeated at the cross. Now, in our text, Paul is foretelling a future victory over Satan, which God will share with those who are in Christ. As we read in our text, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Be mindful of what 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8-9 through 9 say. They instruct us as believers, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. Christians are told that Satan is our adversary. That he is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And Ephesians warns us against his schemes. Schemes that we are to stand against. We are told here in First Peter to resist the devil firm in our faith. Now, now look at what Revelation chapter 12 says about saints conquering the devil. Revelation 12 verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Who's the accuser of our brothers? Satan. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. That's from heaven who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Speaking of saints in the future, it says those saints have conquered the devil by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony for They loved not their lives even unto death. They persevered in the faith to the end. Christ's sake. Refusing to give way to the temptations of the devil, to to turn away from Christ, to be ashamed of Christ, to fall away from Christ. Satan is seeking to turn us away from Christ. Satan is seeking to to make us to to fall away, to not be faithful to the end. And we conquer the devil, or we overcome him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, 
to persevere to the end, even if persevering to the end means up means giving up our life for Christ's sake. Now, there's a final victory that the Bible speaks of over Satan that will come to pass when Christ casts him into the lake of fire. You read about that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. The Christ was defeated at the cross. The Bible speaks of believers overcoming him, persevering to the end, not giving way uh, to to his, his schemes to turn us away from Christ. And there is a final victory. Our text again says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Our text gives us hope in the spiritual battle. Every Christian is in the middle of a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6 is the key passage on that spiritual battle. We're wrestling not against flesh and blood. We're wrestling not against human enemies. We're wrestling against Satan and his demons in the spiritual battle. We are to, to use the armor of God the sword of the Spirit, the shield of faith, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, and so forth, in prayer, in the spiritual battle. The spiritual battle is hard. It's not easy. We, we have formidable a formidable enemy in the spiritual battle. But our text gives us hope in the spiritual battle, telling us the battle will end in victory, establishing peace. God establishes peace through the defeat of his enemies. The defeat at the cross has given us peace with God, received through faith in Christ, and God's future defeat of the devil establish peace. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. Revelation chapter 20 tells us. There will be a time of great peace that is foretold in the Old Testament. God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The battle will end in victory. God will establish peace. Peace. And it's not just the absence of hostility. Peace. The Hebrew word is shalom, and that's in mind in the New Testament. The, the Old Testament understanding of peace, shalom, is wellness, wholeness, well-being. God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God is the one who crushes Satan, but he shares his victory with those who are in Christ. And we will rule and we will reign with Christ. It's a wonderful promise that is given here as part of the conclusion uh, to this great epistle. And then he goes on in the second half of verse 20, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul says something very similar at the end of every one of his epistles. Grace is such a key term. Paul never gets over grace. We should never get over grace. God's grace is truly amazing, as we sing in the hymn, Amazing Grace. 
uh, his saving grace and his empowering grace. His grace saves us from our sins and it empowers us to live a new life for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul loves to end his epistles with a benediction. Or benediction means a blessing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. May his empowering grace be with you when you wake all through your day. You go to bed at night, every day, every week, every year. May his empowering grace be operating in your life. And this is the second benediction that Paul gives. If you go back to chapter 15, verse 33, he said, May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. But that's not enough to give one benediction. He has to give a second one as well. As we have read, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Well, then Paul gives greetings from his companions in verses 21 through 23. He says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipata, my kinsmen. We've seen that term kinsmen before. It means fellow Jews. These are Jewish believers. 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, <laughs> greet you in the Lord. I thought Paul wrote the letter. Now I'm reading Tertius. Wrote the letter. Did, did we make a mistake in saying Paul wrote it? I mean, Paul, Paul identified himself as the author back in chapter 1. He said, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul is the, the human author. But he used what, what scholars call an amanuensis. We might call them a secretary. Uh, Paul didn't write the letter himself, but he dictated the letter uh, to someone who could write better than he could write. He writes, I think it's in Galatians, at the very end, see what large letters I'm writing. It seemed like he, he would write the very like last verse or last few verses in his epistles so that it was kind of like a signature so that it could be recognized that this letter truly came from Paul. He had a unique way of writing, just like each of us has a unique signature. But see what large, what, with what large letters I'm writing. He wasn't as able to write well as others. And it was very common practice uh, for, it's not unusual uh, for someone to use an amanuensis uh, for uh, dictating the letter to. So now here, this brother Tertius, whom Paul selected to be the one who was penning the letter that Paul was dictating, he allows Tertius to give his own personal greeting. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. And 23, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. It appears here that that, that, that Gaius not only gave the Apostle Paul a a place to to live while Paul was in Corinth, but that Gaius actually uh, hosted the church's meetings, that the church met in the house of Gaius. As As we've seen before, in that day, they did not have church buildings like we have today. They would meet in Homes, oftentimes. Gaius, who is host of me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Paul will, or Paul does speak in 1 Corinthians, saying to them, not many of you uh, were powerful or, or wise 
or of noble birth and so forth when God chose you. He doesn't say, none of you were. He says, most of you were not. But here we have someone who did have a powerful position in the city of Corinth. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. God does save people from all sorts of backgrounds. So how do we conclude this? Well, connect this with what will happen later on. Paul gives a warning here to the church in Rome. They are to be watchful. They be on guard against false teaching. They are to avoid false teachers. What will happen in the future of the church in Rome? Sadly, there came a time in the history of the church in Rome when the church did not heed the warning given in our text. Rome became the source of false teaching that deceived much of the Western world. Church in Rome failed to hold fast to the doctrine taught in this epistle of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and added human merits, human works, to the work of Christ and to the grace of God. Understand from church history, no church is immune to false teaching. No individual believer is immune to false teaching. We are to take seriously the appeal to watch out for false teachers. But we are to do so with hope, knowing that the God of peace has promised to soon crush Satan under the feet of believers. Do you have any questions or comments on anything that we have seen tonight? I have not thought about that. Thanks for bringing that that out. That's a great contrast. Anything else? If not, then let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the glorious gospel of Christ, the gospel of grace, uh, by which we are saved through faith in your Son. Lord, uh, we have studied that doctrine in this great epistle. And uh, we know that Satan uh, seeks to attack and undermine uh, the true gospel as uh, he is seeking to turn many away from Christ. Oh Lord, we pray that you would enable us to discern the difference uh, between the truth and error. The difference between the true gospel and false gospels. The true Christ and false Christs. Antichrists. We pray, Father, that you would enable us to 
not only to recognize it, but then to avoid it. We pray, Father, that our hope would be in you. Uh, we thank you, Father, uh, for the promise uh, that Satan will, you will crush Satan under our feet. We thank you that you uh, share with us your victory over the devil. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace to uh, persevere in the faith to the end, uh, whatever the cost may be. And we pray, Father, that you would enable us uh, to be sharing the glorious gospel of the grace of Christ with others, uh, that others would be saved and would not be led astray. For your glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.